We've been going through uh, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. We read Jesus' teaching when he was on the mountain. I think this is a collection of his teachings that Matthew put together. But he sat down and he spoke to his disciples. And really these, these Beatitudes, these blessed are's, blessed are the poor in spirit, We talked about the poor in spirit being those who recognize that in themselves they haven't got much. Uh, But uh, So they come to the revelation, the realization that the human spirit isn't enough. And so as John the Baptist said, I must decrease, you must increase. That's actually one of the keys to freedom with following Jesus. I stop fighting him and I start following him. Because as we see with the disciples, if you you, you follow them through their lives with Jesus... They, they started by fighting. They started by saying, not this way, this way. And if we try to live life by getting Jesus to follow me, it just ends up really disappointing. I don't know if you've discovered that. Or, or if you've tried to argue Jesus into submitting to you. But God, you must understand. Good luck. It, God never changes. He is truthful. He is faithful. And it's his way or the low way. And so there's a blessed are the poor in spirit of those who've actually said, your way, Lord. You eventually come to a place of just yielding. And I think you go on learning how to yield, obviously. But theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The mourning was about, uh, I mourn over the state of the world. I mourn over what is happening in the world where God is not Lord. I mourn because we are getting less than what he actually has for us. And we are satisfied with things that actually are very dissatisfying in the big picture. Blessed are those, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And we talked about meekness is not weakness. Meekness is like, um, is the attitude of a, of a pen in the hand. Meekness is also yielding. That when the pen yields to the hand, what is in the hand and what is in the brain and what is in the mind of the one who holds that pen has freedom to express through that humble pen things that are remarkable. That the pen would say, I never knew I had it in me. And they said, no, you don't. It flows through you. That's actually the Christian life. Some of us are trying to be these self-independent pens. And you can't do that. It's about y- yielding. is about placing your hand in the hand of Jesus and then saying, you write through me what is on your heart and the clues to that as Julia said the clues to what God's wanting to do in you and through you is already in you he says what do you want what is the desire of your heart because God loves his children and you have his image in you and so the things that are precious to him he has already placed in you so that the things that actually he wants to bring out of you often feel like it's just you but it's him in you because it's part of you. I used to think if you yielded to Jesus and if you were going to follow him, he was going to do awful things to you. He was going, you know, if you, if you give God your whole life, it's, bad things are going to happen. He's trying to say, bad things are already happening. Don't blame me. Trust me. But as we've heard earlier, sometimes that journey is a process of steps, not just a flash in the pan. A lot of us, look for flash in the pans and we get disappointed when it doesn't work. So there's an encouragement about trust the process, trust the process like everything else in life.
The meek will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Talked about that last week. The hungering and thirsting is a strong image in the Middle East. Hunger and thirst. And there's everybody actually here hungers and thirsts. But what do we hunger and thirst for? What we hunger and thirst for will tell us a lot about what we desire and what we trust and where we're going. And ultimately we're hungering and thirsting even underneath the first answers we give. We're hungering and thirsting for meaning and life and joy and hope and significance. Uh, And often we've lost sight of what that is about. So God has to remind us and we can help each other call up to life things that maybe we've given up on. There's a phrase in the Bible in people who follow Jesus. You remember the men on the road to Emmaus and they said, we had hoped. And there may be a lot of us who live that, we had hoped, but it's too late now. And that's just a curse from hell. It's never too late. But God isn't us. And so this week we're talking about uh, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. And I wanted to think about what does that mean, the merciful, blessed are the merciful. I don't have a lectern here now, so I've got to juggle some. Um, And I wanted to go into uh, the blessed or the merciful by going into Ephesians. uh, And then I'm going to tie it all together with an illustration. But in Ephesians chapter 1, remember Paul is the guy who... Um, And I say this every time I mention anything Paul writes because I'm absolutely convinced that what Paul wrote uh, is impregnated with his experience. And his experience is, if I trust my mind and if I trust my intellect and if I trust my experience, I'll end up on a road that takes me far from God. Because Paul's experience was that. He he trained his mind, he, he lived in his culture, he believed his teachers and he ended up uh, going far from God with passion and religious zeal. He just, he just didn't get it. And so on the Damascus Road, Jesus met him. And he was turned around and he, began to ga- he gave his life to following Jesus. But for, again, when, when, when Paul's life was changed on the Damascus Road, he was going to Damascus to persecute Christians. He, he was knocked to the ground. He was blinded for three days. He went into Damascus blind and lost and terrified And then somebody called Ananias came and touched him. And Ananias was terrified because he was going to Paul. And Paul, Saul, who he was known, and Saul was a reputation for killing everybody and Christians and everybody else. He was the last person on earth you would expect God would use. And Ananias was terrified. And why I'm saying terrified all the time is because many times also when we're following Jesus, there are going to be awkward moments. There are going to be times of fear. There are going to be times of, oh, I don't want to do that. And God didn't seem to stop there. So Ananias said, but he's going to, and God says, trust me. And he goes to Saul and he lays hands on him and says, brother Saul, God has said you're going to be one who reaches the the, the nations, Gentiles. And Saul from that call, he he goes to Jerusalem and I think the disciples are also freaked out. And and Saul starts arguing and starts declaring in in, in in the temple in a manner that was maybe a little too abrupt, a little too shocking. And anyway, he he goes off to Tarsus for 14 years before he actually comes back into the mainstream of the Christian, beginning to do his Christian missionary work. And why why was it 14 years? Because God had to get the Saul out of Paul and the Paul into Saul. And I'm going to be talking a bit about that, that we might be set free, but we have to actually step into freedom. 
We, are, we, we have been changed from slaves to sons and daughters, slaves to saints, but the slave mentality still haunts us. And that's, how, that's the area that we are always having to grow in. You are no longer a slave. You are free. But it doesn't feel free. That's the process of walking together into it. And the way that you walk into things that don't feel, things y- don't feel authentic yet is you start declaring it. If you never declare it, you will never go there. If you live life according to your circumstances and your feelings, you will never get free of anything. Because you're always waiting for something to break in order to give you permission to break through. But if you actually are in your circumstances and you have your identity in Jesus, you actually rise above those circumstances. Example, a common example, Jesus in the storm across the lake. He slept in that storm. The disciples were frightened. He slept because he was secure. He knew his identity and his authority. And as I said the other week, Jesus slept in the storm that he then rose up and said, be still. And one of the principles of God is that he will teach us first how to be secure in the circumstance and then we will have authority over that circumstance. Too often we are trying to get out of the circumstance so we can get relief. And we call it peace. It's relief. Very often God's going to say, you're going to stay in that circumstance until you learn how to rest in me. And then I'll give you authority. Not only over that circumstance, but you're going to go into other circumstances like that and you're going to have strength and authority. What, you, what, what comes into you is what will flow out of you. We're, we're too passive. We're too often asking God to do stuff that he says, no, I'm going to do it through you, not for you. And so Paul writes this amazing letter to the Ephesians. And remember again, he's in jail, but he's free in jail. He's sleeping in the storm, as it were. That's why he has authority in his letters. That's why he can say, I am free. And you go, no, you're not. You're chained. He said, my circumstances chain me. My spirit is free. And that's not just a bumper sticker. That's not just a worship song. That's actually my life message now. I'm going to actually show you freedom when I'm in chains. And you can see my scars. And I just want to encourage each of us, stop trying to get out of your life. Stop trying to escape from your circumstances and say, Jesus, who are you here for me right now? And who can I be for you? That's called maturing and growing up. So Paul says this, he says, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to worship I need my glass. Through Jesus Christ in accordance to his per- with his pleasure and his will. God has a desire for you that is beyond your and my imagination. And too often we settle for where life has brought us and we look historically back and say, this is who I now am and this is the sum total of my life. And for those of us who are 60 and over, God has n- there is nothing in God's purpose for you that is called retirement, by the way. Retirement is a concept that comes out of a wealthy, affluent Western world. It's not in the kingdom of heaven. The physical retirement that is here, God says, well, just, it's just an opportunity to, to serve me in another way. So retirement is not a gift from God so you can just play golf all day. I'm just bitter and twisted because I want to play golf. No, I don't want to play golf all day. Once a week is fine. But there's, and I say that, and I wasn't meaning to say that, but I will say it because Brad's here. I, I, I say it because we need 
very often the most experienced and the wise are in their 60s and 70s. And then they sort of cop out a life. And that only has only happened in the last hundred years because before that you have the elders and the generations and they all live together. I was reading something this week that said this is the first generation in history, the younger ones coming up that don't need the, their, their elders because they can Google everything they want to know. But that's a fantasy because it's talking about knowledge acquired through the internet. But what we need from one another is wisdom acquired through life. So that's actually a lie. Anyway, what I'm leading up to here is that Paul speaks in Ephesians 1, go home and read it, all all about, um, what does he say? Um, He talks about, you know, I I always get hooked into this, in love he predestined us for adoption. That looks smart, doesn't it? Um, Predestination is badly taught all over the place. It was badly taught by Calvin, and it's badly taught in many places. You are predestined and therefore w- how, it, how often it, it's taught is uh, God has predestined people to know him and some people will be in heaven with him and some people will not be in heaven because they weren't predestined to be with him. Which is like my saying that I have two daughters, Carmen and Michelle. Carmen will go to heaven, Michelle will go to hell. Yeah, whoa, what kind of father are you? See, God has predestined every human being to go to heaven. God has predestined every human spirit to come into his presence. That's what predestination means. You are created in order for God's spirit to live in you. So it's not, you see, if you think it's just predestination from a point, the point of view of uh, God has uh, predestined you, in a, you get, end up with fatalism. Because then you say, well, it's God. God knows who's going to come to him, so you know, that's the way it is. No, God has predestined everyone to know him. That's why he pursues all of us. So Paul, um, he then goes on to say, uh, when you be- believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And then he does a lovely prayer about how God is, the power of God is present and the revelation of God. And you see, God didn't go to the cross, send Jesus to the cross just so that we are forgiven. He sent Jesus to the cross so that we could be filled and empowered in order to live life in a totally different way. And so when we read the blessed are you and the blessed are though, uh, the blessed are you, God is not saying through Jesus, I'm just bringing you another level of laws that you're going to have to work out and try and live up to. Because probably all of us are tired of that. Probably all of us have the self-esteem issue because I can't live up to even love the Lord your God with all your heart. And we need to understand that these directives that come out of Jesus and come out of the Old Testament are not directives of this is what you have to do in your own strength. It's this is who I am. If you look at all the blessed are, it's a description of Jesus. And he's not saying you've got to do this. He says this is what will happen through you if you actually follow me. You will be poor in spirit. You will mourn. You will hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will be meek. Why? Because meekness is in you because I am in you. So one of the hallmarks of God's presence in us is go through these blessed hours and say, so how's it going? What's the fruit looking like? Not as an accusation, but as an invitation. Lord, you said hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm not hungering and thirsting for much other than apple pie. But I want to. 
And what I want to encourage us to do is to hunger and thirst for the things of God rather than just getting depressed and condemned because of what's not happening yet. He's inviting us. Do you realize he's inviting us to so much more than we have? I was thinking about this because um, I was thinking about what it would be like to talk to Jesus on your worst day when you're all aware of your sin and all aware of your failure and all aware of... You, you, have anybody you had those days? And then you think if you don't sin in the particular one that you're dealing with for a week, then you kind of God will accept you now. And we play these games. And I was thinking, what would be like my worst day I'm driving through the grove and Jesus hitches a ride? Because I'm already beating myself up and he gets in and, I'm, and then I realize it's Jesus. What do you think he would say? And what God's Spirit seemed to say to me is, you'd be amazed what he would say. Because he would say, he would speak to the you that desires to be the best version of you. And you say, aren't you going to talk to me about my sin? And he's going to say, what are you talking about? I'm not interested in that. I'm going to call up the you that longs to be better. And so as he was, we, we, we are in this car and he's hitching a ride, what he's doing is he's bringing me to life because there's no shame in his voice. There's no accusation in his voice. It's a father getting into a thing and saying, how are you, my boy? How's it going? And maybe you cry because you're going, ah, life sucks and I'm struggling. And he doesn't go, yeah, and you really disappointed me. He goes, that's why I'm here. Because I wanted to encourage you. I wanted to say to you that I haven't abandoned you. I wanted to say to you that I'm still here. I know everything about you. And my plans for you haven't changed one bit. You haven't disappointed me. I want you to come to life. And in my presence you will come alive. You see, the, 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 the thing about meekness this morning, and, that, and I'm not really just trying to make one, one message. Un, unless you've received the gift of God's meekness in you, you will, it will not flow through you. We live in a culture that is incredibly negative. We're critical of each other. We badmouth each other. We talk behind each other's backs. We do all kinds of things. That is a hallmark and a testimony to what is inside us. And if that's where we are, if negativity is in us, it's because we haven't learned how to receive mercy. See, mercy is allowing God to give me what I don't deserve and to really let it go deep in my heart so that out of me comes mercy. Because when I've received mercy and forgiveness, how can I judge you? How can I withhold it from you? I have no right to withhold anything from you. And where you really get this, because the cool thing about what I'm wanting to share this morning, and what I, I, I've, you've seen what I'm going to show you before, but I don't care because I, it's actually the clearest way I can communicate this. But what I'm wanting to communicate is stop trying so hard and justifying so much and just let God work it out because he's already done it. You see, if you look at uh, Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, if it's by grace you have been saved. As for you, you were dead. 
God had no meaning, seemed irrelevant, I'm getting on with my life. If you're dead, what can you do for yourself? You can't do anything. You live in deadness, but you can't rescue yourself. You can't make yourself come alive. It's one of the definitions of dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, comes to you and breathes life into you. Now, why would he come to you and breathe life into your dead corpse if he sees no value in you? Why would he bother? And what God wants us to grow in assurance of is that we are more precious to him than he is to us. You are the pearl of great price. And the beginning and end of living with Jesus is understanding that he has given us new life because of what he's done. And that's what I want to illustrate and go through with you. I want to ask God today to kill any sense of shame, any sense of I can't be forgiven, any sense of I've got to try and do this all on my own. And so I want to speak over us in the name of Jesus and say, Father, I pray that you will expose the lies and the arrogance of our positions that sometimes thinks that we can do it in our own strength. It really is good news. It is I, I, God so loved the world that he sent his son. So God created the world. And he created the world out of his love, out of... I'm not going to do a whole theology on the world because that will be too much time. But he creates the world. And what is his first creation? He creates Adam and Eve. He creates Adam and Eve in his own image. And he places them in the garden. And he says to them, Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because that tree... Um, if you eat of it, you're going to end up in a place you won't be able to get out of. And because he gives freedom, he has to provide a way for them to disobey him because God cherishes freedom. He cherishes freedom of responsibility, free choice. He could have said, I'm going to create you and you're going to be my puppets. You're never going to sin. You're never going to rebel because that's easier for me and then we'll just have a nice little family. It'll be like a puppet show and, and you will just always obey me. Um, but he doesn't. He says, I'm creating you in my own image and I actually have choices that I make. And so Adam and Eve, uh, they go into the garden and they run around for a while. And then they, they, the snake, uh, Satan in the guise of a snake, because Satan always comes in the guise of something else, uh, comes to them and says, you know, this is the classic way that we are actually always tempted. He says, God didn't mean that, that if you eat of this fruit you will die. The problem is that God thinks that if you eat of this, or knows that if you eat of this fruit, you're not going to die, you're going to become like him. And he's threatened by you becoming like him, so don't do it. But have a bite, it's not going to hurt you. And some people say, oh, you know, it was Eve's fault. If Eve hadn't given in, Adam wouldn't have got into so much trouble. Which is right, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's how it goes. Of course, other people go, well, if Adam had been a man and stood up next to his wife or Eve, then he would have helped her resist what was being tempting. So ultimately, they're both responsible. And what happens is that they end up eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then they have a conscience that says, oh, shoot. I'm sure they didn't swear because they didn't know what that was. But 
they suddenly felt in themselves a feeling they had never felt before, alienation from God, separation. When you've done something that somebody has told you not to do, particularly those whom you love, you get what? Guilty. They didn't even know what guilt was. All they knew was guilt wasn't fun and it pushed them away. And so they ran away and they were scared. And there was nothing they could do to get rid of what they had done. And God comes into the, into the garden and says, Adam and Eve, where are you? And they're looking like this. And they're going, I hope he doesn't notice. And they're scrubbing each other's backs and nothing changes. Because God's looking for this. And this has now become something else. His love is incredibly poured out for them. But he also is a God of justice and he says the problem now is is that you have to leave the garden. You can't be in my presence. Because if you come into my presence, you're going to be destroyed. Because my presence is so pure and so right that anything unclean will just get blown up and you will be separated me for eternity. And so they had to go out of the garden and they went out of the garden and began to live sacrificial lives of trying to know God through their brokenness and you get through the, ho the whole Old Testament a people who are trying to obey God in their own strength and God who has said you're released to live your life on earth as you think which they said was we want kings like everybody else we want to live like everybody else so he said alright live like everybody else you're my much loved children but I'm giving you freedom to explore what you want to do and so these guys uh, give birth to more of these guys and it goes on and on and on. And nothing seems to change because they have sacrificial systems, they have all kinds of things, and nothing changes. They all end up looking the same. They can't keep uh, their lives correct, so they read the law and they go, we can't ever keep this law. So all they do is make atonement for their sin, which means they keep on coming back to God and saying, oh man, we screwed up again. And then they give up and they leave for a while and then he sends a prophet and they come back and the prophet even says, you know, my good deeds are like filthy rags. And, and, and th this is their predicament. And eventually, they haven't heard from God for a long time. God's grace opens up in a visible way. See, God's grace is big. It's all over the world. But now it became... I'm going to have to get somebody to help me in a minute. God's grace became visible. And what God did was there were prophecies about what God was going to do. What is God's grace? God's grace says, I absolutely love these guys, but they are a rebellious people, an opinionated people, and a very small-minded people. They can't think beyond their environment. They're very, very small-brained. Their ability to understand is, is minuscule. It's so small. It's pitiful. But they think they're very big brain because they've got no comparisons. And so what does God say? He says the only way these people are going to know what they were created to be because now they're like people who've got, uh, uh, they've got total memory loss, Alzheimer's. They have no memory of what they were created to be because they've never seen anybody that looks like what they were created to be. They've never seen what Adam was. So what is the phrase that John says? He says, God so loved the world that he sent his son. Who's tall here? 
Who? Brad? Brad, you can, seeing you're here, I might as well make you. I, I need you to bring Jesus down from heaven. Can you get, thank you. God so loved his son, that he, sent, he, he so loved the world that he sent his son into the world to actually walk alongside and he became a child and his grace was over the world in a very personal way now. And he sent his son who grew up to be a man, to be Jesus, to actually say, this is what I called you to be. This is what I called you to be. And he, he called these guys to follow him. And he talked to them about blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. And they said, what are you talking about? We can never be like you. And we want to be with you forever. And Jesus led them and taught them and he did miracles and he showed them what it was like for somebody who was like this Adam, he was called the second Adam, to actually be in relationship with God, with God's power working through them, his wisdom working through him. And he showed them what it was like to be fully human and to be able to do things that these guys couldn't even dream of. And it was called healing power. It was called supernatural presence. It was called something remarkable. And the disciples spent three years walking with this man. And then he said to them, um, there's a time coming when I have to leave you. And they said, but you can't leave us because you're our life. And he says, I have to leave you. They said, why? Because really I've come that I might take what you're struggling with on myself so that you can actually become like me and I can live in you. Because I can't do anything in my own strength. You're still thinking you can do stuff in your own strength. But my Father lives in me, and my Father living in me enables me to be extraordinary. I mean, we're, we've got hands and feet. We're the same physically. But what I contain is, is totally different because the Father lives in me, as you were always created to be. So Jesus eventually gets to that place where he goes before Pilate. And he goes before Pilate and Pilate starts threatening him. And Jesus says, you have no power other than that is given to you. But nevertheless, he, Jesus goes through some excruciating stuff. And he takes on him all the, basically what God's doing. Is let's get him. He just becomes everything we struggle with. And what he does is he becomes like us. And in, as, as Pilate take, sends him to the cross, he becomes the disfigured, he looks like us. And he basically goes to the cross which is outside the grace of God. And he goes here to this place where he is going to hang for the sins of the world. Because God is just, See, God isn't a, a weakling. God isn't somebody who says, I'll just shut a blind eye. He says, sin has to be paid for. And in fact, in human beings, that is still part of our DNA. When somebody does something to us, we say, that's not fair, justice has to be done. We contain the heart of the God. It gets distorted, but essentially, things like fairness and justice are hallmarks of God in Christian and non-Christian. And God says... You've tried to give sacrifices, but it doesn't work. I ha ultimately, the penalty for sin is death. And if you rebel against me, even out of ignorance, it, you, ignorance isn't an excuse. I always tell the story. I went to Luxembourg when I was about 22. 
and I was standing on the side of the road and I, and I stepped into the road and, and the car squealed to a halt and nearly killed me. I didn't remember that people drove on the other side of the road. Ignorance wouldn't have stopped me being killed. Ignorance isn't an excuse. And so we step into this life and we actually are guilty of, of sin. And there are all kinds of reasons for it. But God ultimately said, you have to die in order for forgiveness to be released. But his problem is, they are dead, as Paul writes in Ephesians. But God who is rich in mercy, you see, grace is about saying, I love this world and I love the people. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is actually doing something about it. God's grace is that he loves the world. His mercy is that he so loved the world that his son came to go to a cross. That is mercy. When God's saying be merciful, he's saying do something for others that's an expression of my love that is real. Mercy isn't praying for people. Mercy is serving them. Mercy is the good Samaritan walking along and he sees somebody in need and he picks him up and he takes him to the place and he pays for him and he comes back to say, how's he doing? That's mercy. Mercy is doing stuff and as we do stuff, people say, why do you do it? And that Because God picked me up one day and he took me to a place and he, be, he bathed my wounds and I wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for him. So how can I not want to share that? I don't really care how you got to the side of the road. I just know that God's children don't belong there. So Jesus took the sin of the world and he went to the cross because we couldn't pay for it. And after he had died and said it is finished, they took him off the cross and they put him in a tomb. And they thought that was the end of it. And then... Not very long later, it was actually three days later, it's early in the morning and Mary, who's so grief-stricken, Mary whom, I think if Jesus, I say this quite often, if Jesus could have got married, I think he would have married Mary. I just think that woman who was full of seven demons and was a prostitute was somebody who stole Jesus' heart. And his greatest act of love for us was that he didn't follow it. He said, that's not what I can do. But when he appeared out of the grave on the third day, it was all gone. And he said, I've taken the sin of the world on myself in order that you might live free for the first time in history. You are forgiven. The disciples didn't understand it. They still had to say, what on earth is all this about? And so Jesus had to speak to them over a few weeks and then they remembered some of his teaching. And he said, this man who we saw so brutally wounded and then went to the cross is now risen. And he said, wait in Jerusalem and I'll fill you with my spirit. You are already clean. He had told them that actually when they had the Last Supper. But they didn't, like us, they didn't understand a lot of things until later. And after they'd spent some time with the risen Jesus, he said, you know, what I've released through the cross is available to you as well. And when they came into the marketplace after Jesus had ascended, they looked like Jesus. This is what we were and this is what we are. This was Saul. 
Saul went to the Damascus Road. He spent time there and he met Jesus. And Saul came out of the Damascus Road three days later and people said, but we know this Saul and we know what he's like. And he says, I met with Jesus and he forgave me for everything. You should be punished, damn it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, judgment was given for Saul on the cross. Jesus told the story of a man and he, he owed some money and he went to the king and he was going to have to be killed because he didn't pay it back and the man pleaded with, with the king and the king gave in and said, all right, I forgive you because you owe me millions of dollars. I forgive you. You can go free. That man went away and somebody he knew owed him $10. And he said, please, I haven't got the $10. Please, can you just wait? And he said, uh, you pay it now or I throw you in jail. And somebody went back and told the king about what had happened. And he called that man back and he said, I forgave you so much. And you walk out of here and you vindictively try and squeeze something out of that man. You withheld mercy. So you go and you go to jail and you pay it all off. God calls us to give away what he has given us. So Jesus says, whoever sins can come to me and be forgiven. And what I believe God's Spirit is saying to some of us is it's time you received your forgiveness. I'm not asking you to become like this so that you can try and earn forgiveness. My forgiveness has been won at a great price for you. And I want you to live from this place, not from this place. What is this place? This person sounds like I'll never get there. It's too bad. I'm weak. I'm useless. I keep sinning. This person comes from a place of Jesus has set me free. I am a sinner. I am a saint. Does that mean you don't sin? I, I struggle with living in this world, yeah, and I keep falling down, but I actually get forgiven quickly because I live under grace and mercy. Mercy is God's gift to me of forgiveness, but if I don't receive it, I just talk about grace but never live from a place of mercy. And therefore I'll never give anybody else mercy because I'll be bitter and twisted about what God hasn't done for me. Does it make sense? How difficult does this look? It's called baptism actually. How, how, how difficult does this look? Did you hear any screaming? There's a lot of effort involved. One-handed, left-handed and I'm right-handed. I dropped it in and it's cleaned. Do you know the difference between the dirty one and the clean one? Can you see the difference? That's the same as what the world is looking for. I want to see people who are different. But they're different because of what Jesus has done for them, not what they're trying to become in their own strength. And what happens when these guys, I don't know if you can see this water, but it's dirty. What happens if these guys go into a dirty or, uh, the environment? They actually clean up the environment. If you came and saw this water now, it's absolutely clean, clear. The impact of a life that has been cleansed by Jesus will impact the environment. You see, the way you do it is by your personal relationship with Jesus. It's not social su systems. Social systems are important, but they're not the beginning. That's what light and salt means. Be the light of the world and the salt of the world. You cannot give away what you don't have. 